0: 1 John chapter 3, verse 19, John says, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and we shall assure our hearts before him. For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. And whatever we ask, we receive from him, Because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son Jesus Christ and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this we know that he abides or remains, the idea is, in us by the Spirit whom he has given us. And Father, we just humbly ask for your Holy Spirit's help as we have sang and prayed and fellowshiped as an act of worship to you. We want to continue in our worship now by giving you our full attention. We pray, Lord, you would just by your Spirit's ministry now write your will on the fleshly tablet of our hearts. Speak, Lord, your servants are listening, and certainly we believe there are things we need to hear from this portion of your word. So speak now, Uh, through what you have spoken already in your word by your Spirit's ministry. And we ask together in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, I don't think anybody enjoys dealing with the rather unpleasant experience of our thoughts or at times our feelings within of things like uncertainty or perhaps feelings of fear, or thoughts of concern, or just a general lack of confidence regarding something, we would all certainly much rather enjoy the better experience of what we would call assurance, not insurance, but assurance, and assurance is that confidence or certainty regarding something so that you can be at rest about something. The idea is because you have confidence and you have certainty regarding something, you can be at ease or rest about that. And it is the desire of God that his children enjoy the experience of assurance within ourselves. In fact, Jesus himself stated in John 14, let not your hearts be troubled, understanding that at times we all deal with heart trouble, not just biologically, but spiritually, internally, our heart can become troubled. And Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. It's not the desire of God that we live with a troubled heart. And this passage deals with overcoming heart trouble, being able to experience assurance within ourselves spiritually. And it reminds us that God wants us to live with a sense of inward assurance, that that is his desire for us. Now, the backdrop as we come into these verses, remember in chapter 3, John's been explaining how outward fruit reveals our inward spiritual condition. And in chapter 3, particularly, he described generally two main characterizing marks of a child of God that is, someone who has truly been born again spiritually, they've been saved by Jesus Christ, they're serving the Lord, they're now a child of God. And that their general ongoing life practice, if we are a child of God, will reveal two things very clearly that are evidences of that. One would be living righteously, that is resisting sin, that we have a new desire now to live right before God, to do what's righteous, and to serve Him and live holy lives and godly lives. And the second thing he talked about was a change of heart that would bring about a love within ourselves for the rest of God's children. That this evidence would be there that once we truly become a child of God, now in a new way we find there's this innate love within us for other Christians, for the people of God that was not there before. And we now want to love and we have the power to love like Jesus loved. And these would be two clear evidences that we're in right relationship with God, that we're now living righteously as a general life practice, certainly not perfectly, but our general life practice is characterized by righteous living and loving in the way that our Lord Jesus loved. And that is why John then says, going on now in our text this morning, verse 19, and by this, notice, by those things, We know, he says, that we are of the truth and shall assure our hearts before him. So John indicates, notice, that God has given us a way to both discover as well as even further develop assurance within our hearts regarding our standing before God. You notice in our first three verses this morning by our reading, John's going to repeatedly use this word heart four times. He uses that word heart four times in the first three verses. They're referring to the inward life. That is the very center of who we are in our being, who we really are within our inward condition. The heart is the deepest part. We may refer to it as the source of our desires, the source of our feelings, the source, the stem from where all of our motives come from, our will. It's the inward throne. The heart is the, the well-being or the uh, the well or the source, we might say, that that sends forth everything about who we are as a person, who we become as a person, how we behave, why we do what we do. And again, by way of illustration, that makes sense because in the same way that our physical heart muscle, the organ within... That is basically the epicenter of life, which basically is the source to send forth life through blood and oxygen to the rest of the body, and the function of the heart basically circulates life and existence throughout us. It's what sustains our life, and it functions as the source, and it determines whether our health is in a good condition, right, or a bad condition. And according to the condition of the heart is often the condition of the health, it determines the rest of the body's condition. Well, in the same manner, the Bible uses that analogy to refer to the heart regarding the inward person and the source of who we are, the deepest part of our inward person, the source of our desires and feelings of our passions, of what our will determines to do, the character. So the heart refers to the condition of the inward life that directly controls who we are and influences everything about us. Proverbs chapter 4, for example, says, Out of man's heart flows like a spring all the issues of life. So our heart internally, the innermost part of who we are, can be in many different conditions the Bible teaches, depending upon what is going on inside of us. And just like the condition of our physical heart organ, it can change, it can fluctuate, and therefore it may need to be monitored or even addressed. It appears the inward life, the heart, the central part of who we are, is also something that has a condition that can fluctuate from time to time. Our heart condition can change, the Bible teaches us. And the Bible teaches that we need to stay aware of our heart condition and even monitor and maybe at times even address our own heart condition. And one of the things God has given to help regulate the heart of man, the inward person, the throne of who we are within, is the best, if I could use this analogy, the best supernatural, we might say, pacemaker that could ever exist. It's something that we call our conscience. And God has given to every one of us from birth this thing we call a conscience, which is that God-given moral compass within us from birth to detect whether we're headed in the right direction or we're headed in the wrong direction. And the conscience functions in that way where it kind of gives us a clear reading whether we're on track or whether we need to make adjustments, like an internal moral compass. It's also functioning much like an internal moral judge. Your conscience evaluates what's going on inside of you, and then it communicates a verdict to you. And like an internal moral judge, it evaluates the condition of my heart, it maybe evaluates my current actions, and it delivers a judgment to me, right or wrong or correct or incorrect, acceptable, not acceptable, innocent, guilty. And it's this ongoing experience as our conscience is communicating and helping regulate our internal heart condition. He says here in verse 19, this is what John's addressing, as he says, by this, we can both know. He says, know and assure our hearts, he says there, before God. By this. Now, when he says there, verse 19, and by this, it's a statement that refers by what? Referring back to what he has already just spoken about. That is the things he's just described in the prior verses, which we mentioned from the start, two characterizing marks of a child of God, the general ongoing life practice of righteous living and loving like Jesus loves. So what he is telling us here is by observing that kind of spiritual fruit, by this we know, by observing an ongoing righteous living as a general life practice that we've changed now, we're living righteously, and that we're now sensing that we have this love within us to love people like Jesus loved people. By this, he says, verse 19, we know, that as we can be certain or we can be confident, God's giving us away through some personal evidence, righteous living, love like Jesus, we can know or be certain, he says, that we are of, out of, stemming from, he says, the truth, that is living in alignment with the truth of God. By that fruit evidence, spiritual fruit, we can understand, God gives us kind of some evidence to know, okay, I truly am in right relationship with God. God says, let me give you some evidence, Let me help you to see that you're in right relationship with God now. Now, why does God want us to see that? Well, the rest of verse 19 answers that. God wants us to see and to know for certain we are in line with the truth of God. He says, verse 19, so that why? So we can assure our hearts before God. The idea is to bring assurance to our own hearts. That word assure that John uses there in the original language, it's a term that could be translated to soothe, to calm, or to tranquilize in order to bring rest to something. So the idea is God allows us to see some of these evidences of spiritual fruit in our life so that by seeing those things, we can live with a sense of certainty to assure our own heart That we are okay with God, to kind of soothe our own heart if we get concerned about our condition sometimes, or to tranquilize our heart, to give it some rest that things are okay and we can have a degree of confidence in regards to our relationship with God. Now, though, certainly none of us lives perfect in practice. We don't always do what's right 100% of the time, even as a Christian. John addressed that in the first chapter. We don't always express Jesus' love perfectly. But nonetheless, God shows us here that there is some of that spiritual fruit as an evidence in our general life practice to give us some evidence to help us to be able to enjoy the benefit of knowing, okay, I may not be doing that perfectly, however, God's at least letting me see some evidence so that I can assure my heart within that it is well with my soul. I may not be perfectly living out the Christian practice, I may not be doing everything exactly the way that I should, but God allows us to see some evidence so that we can calm and soothe our own heart within that though I may not have arrived yet, I am not certainly what I'm supposed to be, but I'm certainly also not what I was. And I can tell God is working in my life. I can tell he's a part of my life. And instead of having to live with a constant sense of uncertainty or fear or concern about my standing before God, instead God says, I don't want you to wrestle with that. I want you to be able to assure your heart within. And what a wonderful blessing that despite all the many things that we go through in this life that can at times unsettle our hearts and make us feel concerned within the ranges of emotions and things that go on, that God has given to us graciously a way, the Bible says here, to routinely reassure our hearts, okay, I don't know why this is happening, and I don't know why I'm struggling with this, but I at least can tell enough to know this, I'm okay with God. And it's all okay. And eventually, it's all going to be okay. And in the end, it's all going to be okay because I'm right with God. And God's given us those beautiful ways to be able to just have that degree of assurance to know, as we often sing, it is well with my soul. And just to have that blessed assurance to be able to reassure our hearts is such a wonderful gift and blessing God gives to let us to know that we can assure our hearts before him. He then says in verse 20, notice, for if our heart condemns us, God, he says, is greater than our heart and knows all things. So notice John, as we've talked about, having walked with Jesus From the time that he was a teenager, and at this point of his writing, he's now somewhere in his 90s, so that's quite a journey of walking with Jesus, he identifies here in verse 20 as a solid, mature Christian, a struggle that we all deal with from time to time, as well as the way to overcome it. The struggle he identifies first in verse 20, notice, and that struggle is this, is at times feeling condemned Within our own hearts. Notice he includes himself, and that's really encouraging so that we don't feel we're worse than John the Apostle. Here, John says, look, for if our hearts condemn us, our and us. In other words, John's saying this is a common struggle that we at all at times can deal with, that if our heart pronounces inward judgments against ourselves, condemning us, our heart pronouncing judgment saying you're guilty or our heart condemning us saying you are a failure you're disgraceful there's no hope for you you deserve to suffer in misery and our and if our heart begins to condemn us with those kind of negative thoughts and feelings attacking us within that harsh voice plaguing us with a guilty conscience making us feel condemned inwardly. And notice, at times, our conscience can indeed, apparently, even as Christians, make us, and I'm going to emphasize this word, feel condemned. That even as a Christian, at times, our heart can make us feel condemned. And there are many reasons that can cause our heart and our conscience to condemn us. Some are very obvious. Perhaps it's just regarding our own memory that lingers of past mistakes and failures in our life. Sins and things that we have done in our past that we hold deep regret over or shame about or wish had never happened because they've so, you know, impacted our lives. And just the the memory of those things in these brains that stay there. You know, isn't it amazing how the things that you don't want to remember, you easily do, and the things you wish you could remember are the things that you always struggle to remember. And because we have these broken bodies with these sin-plagued minds, sometimes our heart condemns us because we reflect or rethink about our past failures and mistakes and the regret and shame over that, and we find ourselves feeling condemned. Or maybe it's recently some failure or sin in your life of late in some way that you know you just crossed the line recently and it's very fresh in the wound of that recent mistake or sin is causing your heart to feel condemned within. And sometimes it's not even over sin. Maybe it's just struggles with doubt and fear. Maybe it's depression and anxiety that can begin to cause our heart to feel condemned within. Maybe it struggles with discouragement or just disappointments because of what's happened. And sometimes we can feel very disappointed and discouraged about something that happens. And then we feel so guilty and condemned within. Or maybe it's something that's not happened. And maybe it's discouragement and disappointment of just what's not happened that we begin to feel condemned. Or perhaps it's even just frustration with yourself, feeling that you just don't measure up to some ideal. Or to some standard of other people, and you never will. And, and, and all of a sudden, we, perhaps today, all of us can relate in some way to knowing this miserable experience of heart trouble at times. Whereas John himself says here, where our heart condemns us, your heart condemns you. And sometimes that's caused just by the weakness of our frail and broken human minds and our human nature just causes us to struggle with a guilty conscience or condemnation. Other times, it's flat-out spiritual warfare. And it's just the lying, condemning voice of the devil just trying to beat us up and to kick us when we're down. Always, one thing we all know, it's always a miserable experience, is it not? It's a miserable experience when our own heart is condemning us, and more than that, listen, it can be a paralyzing thing if you permit, and let me emphasize that word again, permit such feelings to rule you or such thoughts to dominate and to control you. You know, Spurgeon said years ago, I can't control a bird flying over my head, but I can keep it from making a nest in my hair. And sometimes we can't control in our brokenness feelings of condemnation or guilt or our heart condemning us over. The- and we may not be able to control the thoughts or the feelings because we're broken people or it may be spiritual warfare. But we can do is choose what we're going to do with the thoughts and do with the feelings. And we have to be very careful because this can really begin to paralyze us in very unhealthy ways and make us start to function in a way that's not according to God's will for our life. And so notice John says it's something we all wrestle with, but notice then he says in the antidote in spiritual maturity, he reminds us in our verse here that it's not God's desire to condemn us. That's not coming from God, nor is it God's desire that we live in this ongoing experience continually, like a cycle of feelings and thoughts of condemnation that paralyzes us. In fact, if you note with me there in verse 19, take note, he says there very clearly, for if our heart condemns us, notice who's doing the condemning. It's not God. He says it's our own heart. Our own heart is the problem. It's our own heart condition at times who's the one condemning us. But John says here, verse 20, yet, the idea is but, God is what? Greater than your heart. God's greater than your heart. So what he's reminding us here is God's greater than our heart. And why does he say, verse 20, and God knows all things. In other words, unlike us, an all-knowing God has the truth, and he has all the facts, which I don't. He has all the accurate awareness about everything. He has much greater, in fact, he has the greatest ability to know what is true of me even more than I know what's true of myself, which means this this morning. What God says about you and your condition is of greater accuracy than how you feel about yourself from time to time. Let me say that again. What God says of you and your condition is of greater accuracy than how you feel about yourself from time to time. And what God says of you and your condition is also of much greater importance than how you may think negatively about yourself on given occasions. See, our conscience can be a very helpful thing. It's God given, it's a blessing, it's a helpful thing, it can be accurate to guide us to a degree. However, Human conscience, unlike God, is not infallible. Your conscience, unlike God, is imperfect. God has perfect knowledge. God has perfect awareness. John says God knows all things. That's why God is greater than our conscience. And that's why God should be listened to at times over all things in a greater way than our conscience because even the human conscience can be a misguided, broken system from time to time. It can at times fail in its ability to communicate things. Sometimes our conscience can be too lenient. And sometimes our conscience starts being, in a way, defiled, and it becomes too lenient, and we should be feeling guilty about what we're doing, and our conscience is being too lenient, not strict enough. Other times, our conscience can be way too severe, and it's way harder and way more severe in its judgment and criticisms, and it makes us too hard in strict SS upon ourselves in a way that God does not desire. That's why it's both good news and very important to remember this, that God's viewpoint on matters, his opinion, and God's verdict, not the verdict of our conscience, but God's verdict is much, much greater in authority because God knows all things. God knows things about you that you don't even know about yourself. God understands us fully. He understands all things in connection to our lives. He sees things that we don't see. He understands things that we can't understand. He has perfect knowledge on all the facts of the situation and things that we aren't even aware of. Therefore, God's assessment is 100% accurate and his evaluation is what's always correct and the thing that always is right, not another person's evaluation of you nor your own evaluation of yourself, and that is so important that God, listen, because he knows all things and he's perfect, God will never be too lenient, and God will never be too severe. God will always be righteous. God will always do what is just and speak the truth, because God knows all that is correct. He knows our doubts. He knows our fears. He knows why we're discouraged. He understands our disappointments, why we wrestle in the way that we do in the thoughts and everything. And God understands why we're tending to feel the way we do, even when we're feeling and making ourselves feel condemned within our own hearts. And the reality is this, how we feel about ourselves, the Bible is simply saying is not the final authority. That's not the greatest authority, how I feel about myself. The greater authority is God who knows all things and what God says of us. And look, in regards to just two areas, when we sin, the Bible reveals that the heart of God is never to condemn when we're in error. The Bible teaches us that the Spirit of God wants to convict us of our error and our wrongdoing, that is, make us know that it's wrong, convince us that is wrong, and that was a wrong behavior or a wrong thought, and so God wants to convict us and expose our error And then he wants to correct our error. He wants us to course correct. He wants us to change. But afterwards, the heart of God is to restore and to bless again, not to keep his thumb upon our lives the rest of our days and to say, okay, because you did that, you crossed the line. So now you can never be a a A A-class Christian. You're going to be a B-class Christian the rest of your lives. See, people do that to us in the world, and we draw that and we translate that to God. So we do something wrong or we fail people, and so the rest of our life, they punish us. Sometimes very directly, sometimes just in kind of an unconscious, subtle way, they just treat us the rest of our life like they got a little chip on their shoulder. And, and, and we interpret that, and then we think, well, that's, okay, that's relationship. So I guess that's what God does. Like, I've blown it. I've made a mistake. I, so therefore, I, you know, I kind of just... I put myself in the, I'm just going to be in the bad boy seat the rest of my life. And so, and we kind of, you know, in this way, behave in a way where we forget that whenever Jesus, who was God in the flesh, encountered people in the Gospels who greatly sinned, what would he say to them? I don't condemn you. Go and sin no more. But he would say, I don't condemn you. I'm not condemning you. Just please, all I'm asking, just... Don't keep doing that. Just go and don't repeat that sin anymore. The Bible teaches in Romans chapter eight regarding the Christian, anyone who's in a relationship with Jesus Christ under the righteousness of Jesus, forgiven by his blood, that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are in a right standing with Jesus Christ this morning, God says there is right now no condemnation over your life. It's almost as if the spirit of God would say, listen, if I set you free and got you out of jail, why are you still sitting there in the concrete cell? What are you doing? I opened the jail door. Why are you? I just set you free from jail. Why are you living in jail the rest of your life? And it wouldn't make sense. It's almost an affront to what God's done. God's saying, I lifted condemnation off your life. Live in the freedom of that. Now, of course, that's the struggle. Our hearts condemn us, but we have to realize that God is greater than our hearts. So what God says is right, because he's the greater authority, and I have to believe what God says of me and God says of my standing by faith, not what my feelings or my thoughts or others may convey. And look, even if it's not about sin... Sometimes I said our heart condemns us, making us just feel like a failure in some way or like we're disgraceful and there's no hope for us. And we have to remember, again, God knows and sees all. So that means God's estimation of our life has much greater accuracy than our estimation of our life. And the Bible tells us very clearly that God does not see things the same way that man sees things. And so I believe very confidently, and and, and I have to often, to be very candid, remind myself continuously that heaven's reward system will reveal God's ways and God's estimation and God's way of measuring everything about our life on earth. And God's people who may look like failures or feel like failures may find ultimately that perhaps they wonderfully succeeded on earth in doing what God wanted them to do. And perhaps God's saying that your evaluation was just wrong your whole life long, and you condemned you. And and, and we have to realize, even the way that we're feeling at times, if it's not over sin, that God's heart is not for us to feel condemned, but to feel his assurance, to sense a confidence, John's going to say, a confidence from God. He knows all the facts, and we have to trust that with him, and by faith realize that it's not his heart that we live in continual condemnation. John goes on to say in verse 21, notice, for if our heart, excuse me, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence towards God. So the elderly John, near the end of his life, tenderly addresses God's people. He calls them beloved, my precious ones. And then he says to them here, in a spirit of love, look, let me inspire you towards spiritual confidence. He says, our heart may be the culprit who's condemning us at times. But we gotta remember, our heart doesn't know everything. God knows everything. God's the final authority. And he says, when we can grasp that and live in light of that reality, then if our hearts are not condemning us, in other words, then if we're not living in this perpetual state of a spirit of condemnation, always beating us up and paralyzing us all the time in unhealthy ways. And even when we do periodically do things like fail and stumble, if we just process it rightly, biblically, that means that when the Spirit convicts us of something we've done wrong, that we resort to 1 John 1, 9 and we confess our sins, we acknowledge it, we agree with what God says. God, thank you for convicting me. I know that was wrong, but I I acknowledge it. And it says, then he's faithful and just to what? Forgive us? and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, and we, by faith, receive that forgiveness and God's promise, and we choose to change and live differently, and we make the decision, I'm going to forget what's behind. I'm now going to reach forward towards what's ahead. I'm going to rest in the fact that by faith I am accepted in the beloved, that Jesus has given me a position of acceptance according to what the Word of God says. Romans 5 reminds us that having been justified by faith, not works, By faith, we're right with God, and we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we now have access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and that we choose to believe what God says and God's promise and what Christ did for us, that because we are in a relationship with Jesus, that the Bible says that by our faith alone, Jesus supplies to us a standing of grace before God. That is that God looks upon us not as a sinful person. He sees us robed in the righteousness of a son, and that when God relates to you, he relates to you now in the same way he would relate to his son, Jesus. I think that's a pretty favorable position to be in. And to know that we stand in grace and we have direct access to go to God, listen, not based upon our performance. I feel like I performed really well today. Can't wait Talk to God in prayer. He's probably going to be happy to see me. And then the next day, oh, I blew it. I talked the way I shouldn't. I said something. I did something I shouldn't have done. And oh, I can't pray. I can't read my Bible. And the devil goes, gotcha. Gotcha. Because you're going off of the way you feel rather than by faith saying, yes, I'm a failure, but Jesus died for that on the cross. I asked God to forgive me. I receive his forgiveness by faith. I have a standing in grace. It's about my position not my practice. And by faith, I'm justified. And so therefore, yes, I blew it horribly. I really need to pray because I don't want to blow it today. I need to read my Bible more than I needed to read my Bible yesterday because I need to hear from God. And I don't want to repeat that same mistake. And that instead we would relate to God in this way, he says here, if our heart's not condemning us, the beautiful benefit on the other side is that he says, verse 21, we can have confidence before God. See, that's the condition God wants us to live in, with a sense of bold confidence by faith as we look towards him, enjoying the pleasure of relating to God with confident assurance within our hearts. This privilege of the Christian life to be able to approach God with certainty, to be able to come directly to God knowing that he's given us direct access and he wants us to come to him. Whether we performed really well or whether we just really botched it. Because we are coming to him based upon the reality of relationship with his son Jesus. And because we're married to Jesus, as the result of that, we now have access to our father who's the king on the throne. And because of the relationship alone, we have this access to come directly to God and we can have confidence toward God in the way that we relate to him. Hebrews 4:16 says this regarding what Jesus has done for us, it says Hebrews 4:16, "Let us approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Aren't you so thankful that the Bible describing God's throne chose to call it a throne of grace not a throne of power. It is a throne of power, isn't it? It's a throne that's filled with love and wisdom, but he calls God's throne a throne of grace because what is grace? Grace is receiving kind, favor, help, and blessing that you do not deserve at all. And to know that though you don't deserve it and I don't deserve it, we can come, he says, confidently to approach a throne of grace to receive what help we need from God as we come to him because of what Jesus has done. How wonderful that God does not only want us to not live in condemnation, but more than that, to have, he says here, an inward, verse 21, confidence in our heart toward God to believe that he wants to be kind to us, to believe he wants to be gracious to us. You know, in this next week ahead, may we all start relating to God the way he he wants us to relate to him not the way that we feel but relating to the father at his throne of grace through the person of our lord jesus how he wants us to relate to him not how we think or not how we feel it's almost as if john gives us an example of that verse 22 he says in whatever we ask as we go to that throne of grace He says, we receive notice from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. So here in verse 22, John speaks of the inward confidence a child of God can have in approaching God's throne of grace and asking for his help in prayer. Now, let me say, as we look at verse 22 together, let me begin with saying that any one Bible verse or any one Bible passage taken alone can become a basis for wrong interpretation. If you isolate any text, it can become the basis for wrong interpretation. It's often been very wisely said before if you torture any text long enough, you can get it to confess to whatever you want. So we have to be careful when we come to certain Bible passages that we interpret Scripture in relation to other Scripture, and we take the whole counsel of God for sound doctrine. And of course, as we look at verse 22, and John declares here, whatever we ask, we receive of Him, because we keep His commandments, and we do those things pleasing in His sight. This is not a blanket statement that because we're God's child, and because God's gracious, that we can treat God like a spoiled child and demand from him whatever we want, whenever we want, and we will throw a temper tantrum in Walmart until he gives us what we want. And that if somehow God is a weak enough father or a dysfunctional enough father, or a weak enough king and ruler that if we just force God or demand of God or claim from God that he's going to give us something, that he has to give it to us. And this is a very unbalanced theology about how to treat prayer and approaching God like he's a genie in a bottle and that he, that, that we're entitled to our wishes. And if you just rub the, the bottle, that genie has got to give you your three wishes. And there are some who. In, in an effort to want to be confident in prayer, have gone way to an extreme of, of naming and claiming things. It's almost this idea of that, you know, if you just, you know, approach God with a domineering attitude and you claim it and you boldly, it's like God says, well, you, they, you heard, they said the name. They said Jesus. I mean, in fact, they said, in Jesus' name. Well, that's, that's, that guy's good. You got to give it to him, sorry. As if somehow God is a, a, a weak enough ruler that he would acquiesce like that. Or as if somehow, again, God would be a poor enough father. Any good father is not going to give to their child whatever they want with every request all the time. That would not be a wise father or a loving father. In fact, again, Scripture in balance teaches us what? The Bible says in James that there are times that we ask, and it directly says, and we don't receive. He says, because we ask amiss. In other words, there could be times, just like my child, could ask for certain things that that I would look, you know, I understand you're asking for that, you want that, or maybe you think that would be best for you, but because I have greater judgment, because I love you, because I see a bigger picture, I have more experience, even if this may make you sad or even make you angry at me, I can't give you what you're asking there. And again, any human father understands that, and we're imperfect human fathers. And so to understand that we can ask prayers at times that are amiss, that is they're not in alignment with God's overall plan, or maybe it's just not the right time. So what does John mean then here when he does, however, give this glorious promise, whatever we ask, we receive from him? John's describing a glorious benefit of living in confident assurance in relationship with God that we can pray with a sense of faith and confident expectancy. And verse 22 even gives us graciously, the second half of the verse, the balance to this. Look what he says in the second half of verse 22. He says, because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. In other words, when our general life practice is seeking to keep God's commands, When my general life practice is I'm living a life that's obedient to the word of God, and my heart intention is to observe scripture, and my attitude is, God, I want to follow your word in this situation. I'm trying to work through this, but God, I want to obey whatever you're commanding. I want to uphold your word. I want to live in in cooperation with the word of God. I want to be obedient to your word in this situation. That's our heart attitude. And he says as well, when our pursuit is also, notice he says, verse 22, "To, to do those things pleasing in his sight. So not only do we want to obey the word of God, but also our aim is seeking to see God pleased, not have our own way. Not to receive what would foremost please us, that is, our heart's desire in prayer is, Lord, not my will, but whatever would please you. Lord, you're ultimately God. You know all things. I'm just trying to figure out life here on earth. And Lord, please, please just do whatever would align with your plan, your overall eternal picture. Whatever would give you, Lord, the greatest pleasure that your will is being done in the grand scope of all these things God is doing at once, connecting and working together all things, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Have what pleases you. When our heart is in that kind of condition where we're saying, God, I want your word to be observed. I want to obey your word and God I just want whatever is in alignment with your will. I want you to be pleased. I don't want my will to be done. I want your will to be done because I trust you. When our heart comes into that condition, guess what our prayers do? They come into wonderful alignment with the will of God. And then when we're asking things with that heart condition, those are the kind of prayers that God says, I'm going to cause you to receive what you've just asked of me. Because if you want me to be pleased and you want the word of God to be upheld, God says, that's a prayer I want to answer. And God answers those kind of prayers. And so when we're praying with that heart condition and that attitude, then we can have this confidence in our prayer and pray with expectancy. Lord, this lines up with your word. And I'm truly just, I want whatever pleases you, God. I'm willing to surrender my will on this. And when we pray those kind of prayers, we can trust that God will respond accordingly. John's going to say this in the fifth chapter chapter 5, he's going to say there in verse 14 and 15, now this is the confidence we have in him if we ask anything according to his will. That's the key. He hears us, and we know that if he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have petitions that we have asked of him. So again, when our heart wants his will, then we can know we can pray expectantly because he wants his will to be done. And so this is what John is conveying, this confident assurance that we can pray at times when we know something's God's will and we want God's will, that God is going to want to do that in accordance with what his plan and purpose is. He then goes on to say in verse 23 here, and this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. So almost in like verse 23, it almost looks like a summary statement to simplify spiritual life. So that we can live assured that we're doing what matters most. And I think this is important because sometimes we find ourselves asking, God, what is your primary command? Or what do you really want me to be doing right now? What matters to you for most? And the Holy Spirit tells us right there in verse 23 trusting Jesus Christ and loving people. Lord, what really matters to you? You know, at times we find ourselves kind of going, Lord, Life is just so overwhelming, and I'm just, I'm confused right now, Lord, and I just, I don't really know what in the world. I'm just all tangled up, and Lord, what am I really supposed to be doing right now? How am I supposed to navigate this, or what do you want from me? What really matters most? I just want to feel assured, Lord, in my heart that I'm doing the right thing right now, and it's almost as if God says here in verse 23, let me help you with that. Let me simplify it. First of all, I just want you to believe upon my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to believe upon his name, upon his character, upon who he is. In other words, just keep trusting my son, God says. You just keep trusting in Jesus. I know your faith's been rocked. I just keep trusting my son. No matter what you're feeling, what you're dealing with, what's going on, God says, here's what matters to me right now. You just keep trusting my son. Don't turn away from my son. Just keep trusting my son Jesus through this. Trust what he's done for you. Trust who he is to you for your soul and your spiritual condition and the eternal life that he's going to give to you. Trust him as your good shepherd as you walk through this. Trust him by relying upon him and depending upon, live in dependency upon my son. And God says, and the other thing that matters to me, just try and love people around you. Just love one another. Just keep doing whatever you can to intentionally exercise love and see, if we're doing those two simple things, trusting Jesus, relying on Jesus, depending upon Jesus, and loving others around us, God says when you're doing that, you can have a sense of assurance that you're doing what the Lord wants you to do right now, whatever situation you're in, whatever the season of life it is if you're relying on Jesus and you're loving to the best of your ability those in your sphere of influence, you can be assured you're doing exactly what the Lord wants right now. That's what matters to him. That's his command. It's almost as if he summarizes it. And he concludes verse 24 by saying, now he who keeps his commandments, that is, and the language there is continually keeping his commandments, abides or remains in him, that is, we remain in relationship with him, and he In relationship with us. And then he says, and by this, verse 24, we know that he abides or remains in us by the Spirit whom he's given to us. So notice, John assures there's a clear way that we can know that God is remaining together with us no matter what's going on in our life, and we can be at rest and confident about that, that the Lord himself is personally together with us He's working in us. He's a part of what's going on in our life. And how do we know that? He says, verse 24, by his spirit whom he has given to us. That is already given. A gift that God already gave and something we received at the very beginning of our relationship with God. That on the moment that we were saved and were born again spiritually, in that experience, God literally gave us, the Bible teaches, a part of himself. He gives us a part of himself by giving to us his spirit to dwell inside of us, to help assure us and assist us. God imparts his very life to us by giving a spirit. Jesus, in John 14, no doubt John remembered hearing this, said this, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching, and my Father will love him, and we will come to them and make our home with them. The Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 1, that in the moment that we trusted Jesus, having heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, he says, in the moment having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession. In other words, God wanting to assure us spiritually that we're together with him and that he's committed to this relationship that we share with him, God literally to assure us Despite our stumblings and struggles in life, God said, I want you to have no doubt. So I am going to actually give to you a part of myself as a down payment on eternal life that I'm going to finish the process and bring you into the eternal dimension. I'm going to give you my very eternal spirit to dwell within you and to live within you And to remain within you so that as Romans 8 says, we can live with assurance and comfort that he's with us and for us. Because Romans 8 says that now God's spirit within bears witness with our spirit, our human spirit, that we're a child of God. So God comes and lives within us by his spirit when we become a Christian to assure the child of God that despite how we feel or despite what's happening in our life, God says, I'm here with you. I'm right here within you to help you. And one day, together, we're going to be together forever. One day, even as I'm with you now, one day, literally, you're going to enter into eternity. And look, folks, it is impossible. It's impossible to be assured or to know what is going to happen on this earth today or tomorrow. But one thing is sure, that you can be assured about That the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and the Lord will never leave you or forsake you. And if you know him this morning, he is together with you, and he wants you to know that he is with you, and he is for you, and that that reality would be the thing that brings a peaceful assurance when you go through periodic heart troubles. Let's stand together and let's pray.